0: Hey folks, Rob Wolf here with your favorite podcast about new books in science, fiction, and fantasy. I've been interviewing this year's nominees for the Philip K. Dick Award, and I suppose it's a sign of either how slow I move, or maybe how busy the rest of my life is, or maybe it's the proof I've been seeking that I actually live in another dimension. But the actual Philip K. Dick Award ceremony has now come and gone, and I'm still talking to the nominees. But that's a good thing because all the nominees have written fascinating and very different books that are worth reading and talking about. For the record, Ramez Nam won the award at NorwestCon on March 25th for his novel Apex, and Marguerite Reed received a special citation for Archangel. My conversation with Ms. Reed is already available on the podcast, and I'll be speaking to Mr. Nam in a couple weeks. But truthfully, none of that matters right now, because with me, through the miracle of Skype, or a miracle to me, who really has no idea how it works, is Adam Rakunas, who was nominated also for the Philip K. Dick Award for his first novel, Windswept. So how are things on the West Coast tonight, Adam?
1: Oh, man, spring has sprung. It is beautiful. Today, it was like a balmy 65 degrees here in Seattle.
0: We had a pretty good day here, too, in New York, but it was um, cold in the morning. But we, we hit yeah. the 50s. We hit the 50s. That was pretty good. I hard. know.
1: It's it, it, it's funny how you get through winter, and all of a sudden, your idea of what's a nice day changes. Like, 50s? Oh, that's going to be great after you know, months of bundling up in the 20s and 30s.
0: It's true, although we've had a very weird winter here. So, you know, everything's, everything's a little kooky uh, weather-wise around the world, nice. I think. So now that your kid is in bed, <laughs> we can dive in to Windswept and maybe you could start just with a a short summary and I thought it would be interesting if you started uh with the title if you could explain what the title means.
1: In the world of Windswept, everything is run by three giant transstellar corporations just collectively known as the Big 3 and people go and sign indenture contracts with them for you know, in exchange for Food and housing and education, all this good stuff. You will go and become a, a, you know, a pawn to the big three for pretty much the rest of your life, in exchange for all the goods. And you know, if you survive long enough, then you'll get a really nice, uh, nice retirement. And the heroine of the story, Padma Mehta, once upon a time was one of these fast rising corporate drones, and she was assigned to a planet that grows in. Uh, genetically modified industrial sugar cane that's strong enough to go and powerful enough to go and power cities and starships and all good kinds of hand wavy stuff like that and she comes down the she comes down the space elevator she's on this planet and for the first time in the, like the last 15 years of her life all of a sudden she remembers just what it's like to be human and all the people who come to this planet they call it getting windswept you get your first scent of the ocean air you you go and you smell the the, uh, smell the can, uh, the sugar cane, out in the Kampong, you go and smell the, the cuisines of a hundred different cultures, all cooking at the same time. And he'd just say, well, forget corporate life. I'm staying here. I'm doing this. And I came up with the whole idea, uh, when I was in, uh, in Hawaii about, oh Lord, uh, five or six years ago, six or seven years ago. Now I had gone to Hawaii to officiate a wedding. And I had showed up early to the, uh, for the rehearsal dinner, and I had time to kill, and I, I, uh, I'm sitting at the bar and I'm, I'm drinking eight dollar glasses of pineapple juice and listening to this cover band "Murder of the Eagle's Greatest Hits," And I was just looking around and thinking, all, "All these people are here. I could see all the tourists, people like me who were just hanging out, but what about all the people who worked and worked at this hotel and worked at this bar? And you know what were, what were their? It's one thing to go and work a work in a service gig but working in a service gig in Waikiki when it's you know pretty much near paradise you know I, I just wondered what what uh what were people's lives like what would what would get people to keep staying here and and do this work and what would you know what would just what would it be like in in, in the future would people just keep on going and, and working uh you know working in cover bands or working in bars and things like that so I, uh, I just pulled out my phone and my ancient... Bluetooth keyboard and I started pecking away. And I, I wrote the first chapter of Windswept in that bar, in that hotel whose name I cannot remember now. I, I probably should look it up because it'd be nice to give them a credit.
0: So the setting is uh, these three corporations that seem to control everything. And I guess that's a familiar setting in, in much of science fiction where you have a corporate, dictatorial, monomaniacal, evil doing, overlording kind of organization. But one thing you don't read about much, which which is featured prominently in Windswept, are, are labor unions, and mm-hmm. I was wondering, you know, how you worked that in, and if you think they're going to be around, you know, in the future. Everyone seems to think big corporations will be around, but but uh, since I haven't seen much of it in speculative fiction, I, I wonder if you think unions are going to be around when mankind has started hoofing it to other planets.
1: I think so because it, I. I I still think that we are a way off from, you know, the magical Ian Banks culture where benevolent AIs rule our lives and, you know, also to go and take care of our material needs. I think that we are always going to have a giant pool of people who are willing to go and do whatever work it takes to, to survive. You know, we, we, we keep seeing that throughout history as, as technology improves and then you know, I think the cost of labor keeps going down, but also the number of people still keep going up. So as, as long as we have people, we are going to have I think a need to go and uh, and keep working. And there is going I think there will be there's always going there will always be these points in history where, at first. You know, a new employer will roll into some impoverished area and everyone will go and say, Yay! Jobs for everybody! And then people will all, then after a while, start to realize, like, wait, but these jobs really are kind of poisoning us and killing us, and, you know, we need to get together and d- demand better conditions. I know, like, the you know the, the mega corporation, that's something that's, that's I don't think, going to go anytime soon. Because, first of all, you know, they make for a really good, they make for really good bad guys, but secondly, I, I think real life is keeping up with all of that uh you know like the the william gibson uh kind of kind of things that you'd see in his sprawl books of you know these these giant multinationals that are more powerful than governments uh we're seeing that right now with the fact that apple has gone and stood up to the federal government of the united states and said nope we're not going to go and and let you we're not going to go hand over a back door to iphones to you And on the one hand, yay for Apple for sticking up for our privacy. On the other hand, that is still a really terrifying precedent that a company is looking out for people's privacy rights instead of the federal government. In an ideal world, it would be the other way around. But, you know. That's probably a discussion for another time.
0: The trend that you're pointing to is is the growth in corporations. But at the same time, we're seeing, at least in the United States, a real decimation of union power. So, mm-hmm. you know, you sort of wonder who's going to win in that struggle if if, if corporations are around in the next couple hundred years. Will, will unions be as well? And, and in fact, there was just a Supreme Court decision yesterday. Uh, that people had predicted would have really harmed unions had Antony and Scalia not, in fact, died. But the the 4-4 decision, I guess, rendered the case moot. But there was a chance that unions were going to find it much harder to collect uh, dues. I don't really know all the details, but but it made me think about your book and how, at least on Padma's planet, the union life is still going strong.
1: Right, and that was one of the things, too, uh, that basically in the world of windswept the union does a lot of the crap work that corporate citizens don't you know that they're still responsible for you know re- re- really just going and keeping podmas planet running and the big three realize like well we got to have all this cane because you know if we don't have we don't have fuel then we're kind of hosed i mean i i, I realize there is still a whole lot of hand waving going on to make this work I, I really hope that we don't have to rely on, you know, burning hydrocarbons to go and and heat our homes and, and light up our cities. Because right. that's still what the sugarcane is. It's still it's just going and you know, it's still going and chucking in a furnace in, instead of uh, using photovoltaics or wind or tidal or something you know a, a clean renewable energy. Right. That's also carbon neutral that's you know, that's as carbon minimal as possible.
0: Well, that's why it seems like, as science fiction often is, is a metaphor for the way we live today. I mean, the cane culture is a little like, you know, today's corn culture, where we where we grow corn, you know, and turn that into fuel, too, ethanol and right, right. corn syrup and, you know, even just corn, you know. I mean, feed for animals, and right. uh, we use so much of it. And I suppose the same thing is true that occurs in your book, which there's this disease, this plague of black stripe, which is threatening this monoculture crop that everyone depends on in your book. And, you know, that could presumably happen, you know, as it happened with the potato famine, but we're still facing uh, threats like that because I think there are a lot of monocultures. I think the bananas we eat in the United States are mainly one species, um, mm-hmm. you know, which which are vulnerable to, to particular illness. So that was an interesting choice too.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, I am a big fan of biodiversity and agriculture mostly because i think it's delicious i'm i I like going to farmer's markets and seeing oh here you know if i go to if i go to if i go to safeway i'll see two maybe three varieties of potatoes i go to the farmer's market i'm going to see eight or nine and i think just you know what what on the surface could just be a variety of flavor is also going to be a variety of different plants that could all survive up to you know, different pests, different, uh, different diseases. I hope that all the sugar cane that that's being grown around the world has some kind of biodiversity because, you know, like black stripe is a, is a real thing. I just went and, and pumped it up and sprinkled some genetic engineering, uh, magic on it for the book. But there are still all kinds of lovely smuts and rusts and, and molds that could go and and wipe out crops and see if it, that happens in, Brazil, which relies on sugarcane to go and you know as a fuel source, not just as as a sweetener, like that would just go punch a gigantic hole in the Brazilian economy if all of a sudden like oh well uh, yes all of our fuel that we grow it's now turning into sludge in the fields and we can't do anything with it. So all, all you listeners out there, support biodiversity, go to farmers markets, eat eight varieties of potatoes. It'll it'll make the world a better place.
0: And it's interesting because uh, a lot of those varieties of potatoes are actually, I mean, we think about genetic modification, moving the world forward, moving crops forward. But a lot of those, when you go to a farmer's market, are heirloom varieties, things that haven't been grown in a long time. And exactly. people are sort of inspired to grow those and are finding finding they're, they're actually quite good, tastier. I mean, they, they actually achieve some of the goals that people are uh, perhaps trying to achieve through genetic modification.
1: Or just plain old, you know, just good old-fashioned slow-motion genetic modification through breeding. But, yeah, that, I, I, that kind of stuff fascinates me to hear about things like, I forget the guy's name, but uh, uh, this one guy in, I believe, Pennsylvania who was trying to go and catalog and get as many apple seeds as possible for all of these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of varieties that used to exist in America before everyone decided, well, you know... Red Delicious and uh, Fuji and uh, and you know Granny Smiths and there we go. That's enough apples for us.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: <laughs> and you know not only do you miss out on, on flavor, but yes, you're you missing out on on history. It's important, I think, to know how people used to eat. So we go and connect with, you know, we connect with our with our culture, we connect with our our family, we connect with our ancestors. And that was one of the other fun things to play around with windswept. Everyone there is an immigrant for the most part. There, there are some people whose families have been there for a little while, but everybody shows up and they bring the, the things that are important to them, the things that remind them that they're human. And I think food is just one of those basic elements that, that help a culture survive. You know, people, will like, people will get up at arms if you go and, and mess with their, uh, you know, mess with their favorite baguette recipe or something like that.
0: And food culture, you know, that also, just like a plant species that have been grown the old-fashioned way uh, through over generations, food culture, too, takes generations to create a kind of complexity that, you know, is complete in and of itself.
1: Right. It can also get uh, get decimated pretty quickly, too, thanks to, you know, again, thanks to the magic of giant corporations, you figure, like, well, how can we go and, and affect our bottom line? And, well, well, we'll take these two ingredients out and we'll save a few pennies per baguette and... If the loaf doesn't taste as good, well, no one will know the difference, but people know.
0: <laughs> Why don't we talk a little bit about Padma, Padma Mehta, your your protagonist? I mean, I would just say that to me, she's like no one I've, I, I'm pretty sure she's like no one I've met in books, maybe certainly no one in real life either, Which which doesn't mean she isn't believable. But um, but I guess I'd say she's kind of like a female version of a of a grumpy noirish detective. But she's also got the physical strength and resilience of a superhero because she's always being tossed around in in endless ways and falling, you know, being dragged up cables and falling. Ten meters at a time and and then on top yeah, of that be, because she's a labor organizer, I was thinking she also has the politics of just to make it very contemporary uh, the politics of Bernie Sanders
1: mm-hmm. no I, I'm, I, uh, I wrote this long well, I had known about Bernie Sanders, but he didn't really play it into it. I think you're you've hit the nail on the head that i I really wanted to have sort of a, a Philip Marlowe noir hero who had gone and you know seen it all and done it all but but is still fighting their own little fight living by their own moral code I always like that idea of uh, of Marlowe as the tarnished knight somebody who um, you know somebody who knows that the world is this horrible corrupt place and it's corrupted him a little bit but he will still continue to try and make things right in his way and I think the the labor organizer element you know I, it's just a good it's a good source of of conflict and and drama for the for the first part. And I think I think it's important to go and, and be able to cheer for cheer for the downtrodden little guy in the face of faceless corporate he- hegemony.
0: I mean and she's an incredibly moral figure. I mean she she's I mean again and again getting screwed over by the people who she either trusts or at least is trying to deal with fairly and Given the opportunity, I mean, these people would happily kill her or see her dead, and and when the tables are turned in a moment of crisis in one of the many action scenes that uh, that fill the story, she, you know, declines to pull the trigger, and. And do away with them. She's always giving them a second chance, all usually to her uh, regret. You know, a couple of scenes later, because they they surface right. again, once again trying right. to to nail her, and once again she refuses. You know, she declines to do it. So, I mean, it gives her it gives her a, a deeper strength. I think that she's able to like stick to her guns and maintain this kind of moral equilibrium.
1: Right. Well, I think Padma always has that that sense of you know, deep beneath her, her battered cynical armor, she's somebody who has been hurt. I, I probably not you know, the book has been out for a while, so I'll just go ahead and give this away just a little bit. So spoilers, cover your ears for a moment if you don't want to hear. Okay. Uh, but when Padma was coming to this planet, she as part of a of an experiment by her done by her employers, she has some brain damage. She has been, you know, hurt through the carelessness and and uh, just you know, lack of care from her old bosses, and I think she always is gonna. She's somebody who's is gonna go and see other people who are being hurt and screwed over, and has just decided to go and make a stand and say no more. I'm not gonna stand for this, even though I'm just one tiny one person in the face of this huge of this this huge company. I'm still gonna shake my tiny fist and say nope, screw you. I'm not gonna let this happen to anyone else. And you know we see that all the time. You know, we God, we saw it a couple summers ago to have all these people standing up uh, against armored police officers with tear gas and shields and military-style weaponry to go and say, "No, you are not going to go. You know, you were supposed to protect me and my family and my neighbors, and you're not. You're not supposed to be an occupying army." You know, it's another one of those cases of real life just getting much weirder than anything that we could come up with in science fiction right now we're living in some seriously strange times and i think we have to go and either go and really go and and get ridiculous with our predictions and our extrapolations or just have to write really really fast before reality overtakes us
0: it's like something like House of Cards, you know, you see that. And now, you know, last season, you're like, this show is ridiculous. It's completely, you know, I mean, <laughs> politics might be corrupt, but it's not this crazy. And now this year, it's sort of like, it seems kind of tame, actually. I mean, actually, I actually haven't finished yeah. watching the the new season. But that's my feeling, you know, that the newspaper is much more filled with much more wild misadventures of politicians than yeah. our fiction is.
1: I know the fact, you know, we have a reality star who will quite possibly be a candidate for the president of the United States. That should really be a wake up moment for everybody.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: That that should get everybody pause that there is something really really wrong with not only with America's political system but with media, education, this you know the whole enchilada. We really we as a populist should not have gotten to this point. <laughs>
0: Well, let me ask you this, I mean, because as a, as a science fiction writer, I mean, you know, you're obviously interested, and in, just from what you're talking about, in how humans can act responsibly and the consequences on society and the world when we don't. And um, and I guess I was kind of thinking, knowing that, you know, we couldn't speak until your daughter was in bed, and I, and I wondered if you have changed and if you're, the things you're most concerned about and want to write about have changed since you've become a parent.
1: Well... I'm not sure I've always been concerned about climate change. I've always been concerned about the effect that our our carbon heavy economy is having on the environment. I think I've certainly had a, a sense of urgency since she was born that I really want to go and, and make a point of saying I am going to go and I want to go and try and make make sure that there that that my daughter is going to be able to grow up and have the same standard of living that my wife and I had what's funny is is that I certainly have gone from being somebody who writes, uh, writes a sternly worded letter to the editor or to his representatives in Congress to, like, a couple of years ago, I actually went and volunteered for someone's city council campaign when I was still living in Santa Monica. And it would, would start off like, yeah, I'll just do a few hours a week, just basically turn into my job for, <laughs> for all of summer and up, up until election day just because i thought like well here's an opportunity to go and work for a candidate who is going to try and you know someone who has this who has the same concerns that i do about the environment about traffic congestion and all the all the stuff that that spins up from there and it's going to go and try to do things on a on a municipal level. I know there's that cliche there's that cliche of think globally act locally but there is not enough acting local going on right now. <laughs> And my candidate lost, unfortunately. He got he really got crushed, which was, which was heartbreaking. But they, you know that that's them's the breaks. I know we we did go through some other changes. Like I so I was born and raised and educated in Southern California, and really kind of stayed in the same 20 30 mile radius for most of my life. And then last year, uh, our our apartment building went up for sale, and a whole bunch of other stuff happened. And, and my wife and I we upped and moved to Seattle. And one of the things I figured into that was the fact that California was undergoing a, just a terrible drought and everybody's response seemed to be, okay, well, we'll just turn off the sprinklers and we won't water our lawns all summer. And, uh, well, that'll go and fix things, you know, without addressing like the structural issues that, that have brought about, you know, not, not just the drought, but, have, but have gone and, and kept California's water, uh, Going towards growing alfalfa and rice, you know, really water-intensive crops that are being grown just because those producers have, you know, grandfathered water rates that are that are ridiculously cheap.
0: And I remember reading that uh, that every almond takes twenty-four gallons of water or something, something, something outrageous right. and seems completely out of proportion to, to what you get for it.
1: Yeah, the almond's got a really bad rap, I think, compared compared to rice and alfalfa, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's incredibly intensive to go and grow all those crops. And on on the one hand, I really like almonds. I like almond butter instead of peanut butter. But <laughs> uh, having an entire agricultural economy based on really you know ridiculous water prices instead of what's appropriate to grow in that environment, I think is insane. And the, the governor and the state assembly and the state senate were not about to do anything to change that because it would have been political suicide for them. That The people who have those water rights are really, really rich, and um, you know they're not about to go and give up their profits anytime soon in the name of something as silly as preparing the world for future generations.
0: So you're in, um, so you're in Seattle where there's more water. So you're not, you're not draining the the reservoirs anymore in Southern California. Personally, anyway, your family isn't.
1: Right, right. Well, it's it's also a matter of just you know we're moving to a place where the environment is is still pretty healthy right now, and I think will be through her adult adulthood. I, I, you know, I, I don't really know what the what the next twenty or thirty years are going to be like in that part of the world. I think the fact that the global temperature keeps creeping up and up and up, and we've gone. It, it sounds like now that that governments instead of saying well what can we do to go cut back on our carbon. Expenditures are now going and saying, "Well, we're kind of hosed, so let's get ready for flooding." You know that nobody still wants to go and, and take that leap to try and turn the dial back. Everyone just keeps saying, "Like, no, you know, we like we like driving, we uh, we, lo- we like uh, we like eating beef, we we like doing all these things like that, and we don't want to change our habits, but we'll you know we'll just prepare to go and abandon Miami and." every coastal city as the uh as the oceans rise and and storms get worse and all sorts of stuff like that i know i really should be a lot more optimistic i should be working really hard to go and change things like that uh i know up here and it's funny i know you're gonna you're gonna interview ramez nam next and mez is on the board of a group that is putting a carbon tax on washington's ballot and that you know that's that's the kind of forward thinking that that we need to go and and start realize like realize that industrial society is awesome, but there is a price that's to be paid, and we're either got to start paying it now, or our kids and grandkids will really, really pay it with interest down the line.
0: And do you think science fiction has a role to play, just to bring it back to the yeah. the field that uh, that you yeah. practice? Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's great. I mean, it. I have. I have no. I'm just. You know. I'm just connecting it because obviously, I mean. Uh, this is something you're interested in, I'm interested in too. That's why science fiction writers, you know, write about these things because we're personally interested in them. And um, so I wonder though, you know, is our role, I mean, it's fascinating that uh is engaging in something very concrete and practical today and not merely writing about it. Not that I shouldn't say merely, but I, I, I do wonder when, there is a certain level of consciousness raising that I suppose can happen in a work of fiction, but I wonder how often that translates into into people taking action.
1: I don't think it translates often enough. I, you know, science fiction, I think, has two roles: that we we go and write the really bad versions of the future as warnings, so people could go and see. You know, there's that 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 uh, that question of. I can't remember that neil gaiman once I saw him give this talk where he said that the questions that science fiction asks are what if, if only, and if this goes on. And we have seen a lot of people writing stories and books that answer those questions. And but we also have to go and write the positive possibilities. My friend Yetsi DeVries wrote uh, edited this anthology called Shine that was all about positive science fiction stories. He was just fed up with the doom and gloom of all of these horrible dystopias that he kept reading. And he just, he came up with all, he wanted to go and promote the idea that science fiction isn't just a warning sign, it can also be a roadmap. One of my favorite books is Kim Stanley Robinson's Pacific edge, which he wrote back in the nineties. And is this, it's an ecological utopia. It's Southern Cal, it's a Southern California where people, I I, I like to think of it as as started to go and build the the foundations for the federation from Star Trek. People stopped trying to go and amass wealth and started to go and make sure that everybody had a, had a decent life to live in. The idea that that you know salaries should go and have not only floors, they should also have ceilings. And what I, what I always loved about that book was people in Southern California embracing the idea that their addiction to cars was killing them and so like any addict they admitted they had a problem and they kicked the habit and all of a sudden you have freeways that are filled with bicycles which (laughs) which would never really happen today i think it would it would probably it would take a thousand people on bikes going and hopping on on a freeway at rush hour and they would probably really really upset the drivers but to go and hammer home that point of you can move a lot faster and do the same distance. And okay, you'll get a little sweaty, but you'll feel a lot better and you'll arrive happier on a bike than if you do in a car. And I know that there are some some little movements like uh, you know, the critical mass movement used to go and do that, where you go and get a bunch of people who would ride together through downtown. But that also blossomed into something that started in, uh, in Bogota. They called it a ciclovia, which is where they shut down a giant chunk of the city. And it's now open just for people on foot or people on bikes or roller skates or whatever. And Los Angeles did a couple of those before I I moved away. And that was a really heartening and amazing thing to go and see a hundred thousand people on bikes riding, you know, riding around downtown or in all these different places, but turning it like, you know, that's, and that's a kind of action. And that's good. It doesn't go far enough. You know, it would be great if we could have, a Cyclovia every weekend as opposed to, you know, once every six months. And that just takes, you know, ter- turning, the, turning the stories into action, that takes people organizing. And organizing is really, really boring, unsexy work. I, I know from the little bit I did on, the, on my friend's city council campaign, it is really hard to go and call a list of voters and, and say, hi, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, this issue. And what Mez is doing I think is fantastic. And I really hope that, that his campaign works, that his group's campaign works and becomes a model for other states to follow suit. And I think one of the things that, that we can do to, to make it work better is, is gonna have to be to go and write the stories that create that roadmap to that positive future. The one that says we are not completely hosed, that there will still be a good healthy tomorrow for everybody, it's gonna mean that we have to change. And some of that changes, you may not like that change. You may not like the idea of having to go and carpool once a week or take a bus. But, you know, I think people have to go and, and start making a choice of what kind of future they want to have.
0: I think cars really were the worst idea that anyone could ever have come up with, you know, if someone were writing, envisioning a yeah. future 200 years ago, if they thought, well, everyone would have their own little motor, and they'd be taking up this much space, and they'd all go in different directions. And, you know, instead of envisioning public transportation, right, t- t- tying the whole world together. But then, you know, I live in Manhattan, so my view is completely distorted. I I, I can go for weeks without ever setting foot in a car. Yeah. I think if I understood correctly from your bio or I read somewhere that it took you quite a while to get your first story published, and then you worked on Windswept for maybe up to seven years?
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're not sure. It's such a daze.
1: I'm trying to, I'm trying to go back, go through time. I started at Windswept in July of 2009. That was the wedding. I remember that. No, sorry. July of 2007. I finished in July of 2009 on a family trip to Arkansas. So that was you know two years of writing a first draft, and then probably well, let's see I wrote the first draft our daughter was I finished the first draft in July, our daughter was born in December. everything's kind of a blur for two years after that because <laughs> uh, i was the I was the stay at home parent, so you know i I had that uh I had that that dream of like, oh yeah you know I'll, I will work when my daughter's taking her naps and I remember every time I would tell that to my mom, and she would very politely laugh in my face and say, "Oh, sweetheart, you, you hang on to that dream. That it's good to it's good to have a dream to sustain you." <laughs> yeah,
0: when well, you end up passing out yourself, probably when she was napping.
1: Oh, man, it was like she'd be asleep, I was out. <laughs> uh, but I I I sent that draft of Windswept to friends. I, I'm my friend Daryl Gregory read one of the early drafts, and he very politely tore it into tiny, tiny little pieces. And what's funny is, is that for a while, every time I'd see Daryl, the first thing out of his mouth would be, man, I'm so sorry about the critique I gave you. I know that was, I was too hard on you. <laughs> but I'm glad he did because one of the, you know, one of, one of the important, most important things that any writer has to learn is how to revise and how to go and get a, get a tough skin and, and suck it up and take all, all the critiquing you get. And yes, yeah, sometimes it'll be really silly, but, you know, when you have a, a, another pro who is telling you the stuff that does not work and how to fix things, then yeah, I think it's good to shut up and listen and then follow through with all their advice. And I was also fortunate enough, not, you know, not only to have Daryl go and, and pummel the bejesus out of that story, but I also got invited to a writing workshop called starry heaven that was, uh, run by a writer named Sarah K castle. And she based it off of, of, uh, Charlie Finley's blue heaven workshop, And the way that works is that you get 12 writers together. And before the workshop, everybody turns in the first 50 pages of the novel you're working on. Everybody reads all the first 50s. And then you go to the the person organizing the workshop and you say, I would like to read the full versions of these two novels. And then the the head of the workshop goes and does all this juggling. And then poof, everybody then gets two full full novels to read and critique. And it's really an amazing thing to go and have – 11 people give you a critique on the first 50 pages and then they have two other people give you a critique on the full novel and my two full readers were William Shun author of the Accidental Terrorist and Brad Weir who is author of you know the Winds of Kalakovo the Winds of Kalikovo and uh 12 Kings of Sharakai and all these things like that you know that that was like just as as Brad's career was really launching and just as Bill was busy Fit, uh, tooling up his memoir there, and you know, so they went towards the pieces, and I went home and <laughs> licked my wounds and got to work. And then it was still another, probably another year, when I finally had the book ready to go, and I started to do the, the query dance like everyone else. And you know, again, I turned to someone else who who had gone through this, and Mez had gotten uh, Nexus published, and that turned into his deal for Crux and Apex, and Mez is incredibly, what's the one I'm looking for here, thorough. And he had made this massive spreadsheet of all the agents who represent science fiction writers, all the agents who represent thriller writers, all the, you know, just, he broke, broke all the agents down. into had great big lists. And, and then I started ticking through the spreadsheet, just one query at a time. And I was, uh, my own list after I, after I finished it had, I think, 65 agents. And I was re- either uh, rejected or didn't get a reply from 64 of them.
0: It only takes one, I guess.
1: It does. And here's the funny thing is that is that um, the other wacky thing is that people always, you know, I, I was always told that the, the way you go about being a writer is that you write short fiction a, a whole bunch to kind of learn the basics of the craft. And then you use that to go and, and build your resume so when you go and, and query people, you can go and say, like, well, here's all the stuff I've written, and here's this book. And, and um, I had just made my, like, in the middle of all of this, I had just gone and made my first professional short fiction sale to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And that was after a, a story that I'd written a while ago. Actually, it was a story I had written for Yeti's anthology, now that I remember it. And he, he thought it was, a good, it was good, but it didn't really fit in with the tone of the anthology and I took it to my writing workshop, this group called the freeway dragons and they, they beat it to pieces too. But by then I was ready to go and take their, take the, the beating and I revised it and sent it off and, and sold it. And then I got this email about two weeks after the magazine comes out from an agent who said, Hey, I really liked your story. Do you have a novel? And I said, why? Yes, here it is. And, um, that was the same time that agent number 65 wrote back to say, Hey, I really like your novel. Uh, do, do you want are you look? Are, are you still looking for an agent and I had to go and, and uh, it was a tough decision to go and bounce off bounce off the two of them but at the end I wound up going with uh, with Joshua Bilmes from Jabberwocky and you know he is gone and, and he sold Windswept and its sequel we've got the uh, he sold the audio rights so the the audio dramatization of Windswept will be coming out sometime in 2017 great yeah, so that's it's exciting. It took a long time. I think that was, you know, Windswept came out in September of 2015, and I started it in July of 2007. So that's what is that? I can't do math right now. It's been a long day. Uh,
0: I guess that's uh, eight years or it's so. Eight years. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So eight eight years from that bar in Hawaii to uh, to having the book actually coming out.
0: And did you lose faith along the way ever?
1: Oh yeah, I had plenty of times where I thought this is this is terrible. This is, I, I'm making a gigantic mistake. My wife never let me quit. Which is which is amazing. I I hope one day that I can go and you know, sell I got I hope I can sell enough books to help with our retirement. (laughs) Um, Well
0: when does the sequel come out? That I'm sure that will help. That will keep the momentum going. The
1: the sequel comes out June seventh of this year, and the title and I still can't believe I got away with this is Like a Boss. My, uh, my agent and my publisher, Angry Robot, we kept kicking around all these different titles. And I just kind of tossed that one out as a joke. And then Sam, my, Sam, my agent, says, yes, that's the one. And then Angry Robot said, yes, that's also the one. And I, I'm still not going to believe it until I see the book in my hot little hands that that's actually the title.
0: <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much, Adam. I, you know, I'm looking forward to the sequel and whatever else you've got up your sleeve.
1: Great. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Well, I've been speaking with Adam Rakunas, whose novel, Windswept, was nominated for the 2016 Philip K. Dick Award, and whose sequel will be out in a couple months. Uh, You can find my conversations with the other Philip K. Dick Award nominees of 2016, Brenda Cooper, Douglas Lane, P.J. Manny, and Marguerite Reed on the Science Fiction page of the New Books Network, and in a couple weeks, the sextet will be complete when I upload my conversation uh, which has yet to occur with Rames Nam. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other podcasting apps and to follow us on Facebook, under NB Science Fiction, and on Twitter under the handle NewBooksSciFi. Sci-Fi. The podcast logo is by Michael Thibodeau, and the beautiful theme music was composed by Michael Aaron. The editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe and The Escape. Follow me on Twitter at RobWolfBooks, if you dare. And uh, thank you so much for listening.